If you'll find your place in your Bible this morning at Mark chapter 10, Mark chapter 10, and we're going to be looking at a passage that begins in verse 17 and goes down through verse 27. We will not cover all of this passage today. We will have to come back to it at a later time in another message, but we're going to look at part of this passage anyway in this series of messages that I've entitled Simply Jesus. And what I want to do today is I want to introduce you to a man that we meet here in the 17th verse of the 10th chapter. Uh, There's a lot of interesting things that the Bible tells us about that man that we'll look at in just a few minutes. But what I want you to see is the context in which this is all unfolding before us. Jesus is moving or about to start moving toward Jerusalem. If you turn back a page in your Bible to chapter 9 and you look at verse 33, it says, then he came to Capernaum or to Capernaum, as I like to say. He came to Capernaum. Capernaum is that city on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was the home base of the ministry of Jesus. It was the center of the work that Jesus did. And a lot of the miracles, a lot of the ministry of Jesus takes place down here in Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee, and the cities that are around the, the Sea of Galilee. But when you get to chapter 10, verse 1, He's about to move. Actually, he's already moving. Chapter 10, verse 1, Then he arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. And so he moves from Capernaum, and he begins moving south. Uh, He's coming down the shores of the Sea of Galilee. He's going to cross over the mountains uh, of the Samaritans, the Samaritan mountains. Uh, He's going to come down here along the pathway that parallels the Jordan River. And then he crosses over the Jordan River at some point, over into a territory that's called Perea. And over here is in Perea, uh, on the eastern side of the the, uh, Jordan River, is where you're going to find Jesus uh, meeting this man and this man who's meeting Jesus. We know where Jesus is headed, don't we? Because in chapter 10 and verse 32, it tells us, it says, now they were on the road, go, they were on the road going up to where? Jerusalem. So he's left Capernaum, he's moving south, he crosses the mountains, the Samaritan mountains, he comes down parallel with the, uh, the Jordan River, he crosses over the Jordan River into Perea, on the other side, into Perea. He meets this man, this man meets him, and then he begins this journey again, headed toward Jerusalem. And of course, when he gets to Jerusalem... Jesus is ultimately going to be arrested. He's going to be unjustly tried. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be buried, and he's going to rise again. But as Jesus is down here in Perea, you notice in verse 17 that he has an encounter with an unnamed man. It's interesting as you read through the gospel of Mark that there are a lot of these encounters, a number of these encounters where Jesus uh, is meeting someone, but Mark doesn't give us any designation as to the person's name or something about their heritage or their background so that we have some way to connect them to a family. It just says in verse 17, now as he was going out on the road, in other words, he's about to begin from Perea on this journey that's going to take him up to Jerusalem. Now as he was going out on the road, one came running, a very nondescript way of saying a man comes running up to him, knelt before him, and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? 
And thus we're introduced to an encounter that Jesus has with this man who comes running to him as he's about to begin the journey. You can almost imagine it, can't you? There's, there's no doubt a number of people that are traveling with Jesus. He's not moving alone as he leaves Perea and he begins this journey to go up to Jerusalem. He's not traveling alone. And as he's beginning this journey in verse 17, this man comes running from a distance seeing that Jesus is going to be leaving the area, wants to have this meeting with Jesus before he leaves the area, and he stops the entire forward progress of all of those that are in this group. Most importantly, stops the forward progress of Jesus moving toward Jerusalem. Now, this man that comes to Jesus on this day, we know some things about him because this story is related to us in all of the synoptic gospels. We find it here in the Gospel of Mark. We find it in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke as well. And when you take the Gospel stories and you combine the stories together, you collate the stories together, you begin to pick up details that one writer gives you that another writer doesn't give you. For instance, we know that this, this man was rich. Uh, Matthew says about him in Matthew chapter 19, verse 20, that he had great possessions. He was somebody who had a tremendous amount of wealth. Now, where did that wealth come from? Uh, because you're going to see in a moment that he's also young. It's unlikely that he'd earned all of that. He could have, I suppose, have earned that amount of money and had uh, some way of making that kind of, of riches, that kind of fortune in a short amount of time. B but more likely, it was handed down to him. It was an inheritance that was given to him. It came to him by way of his family, but he was rich. Can we just stop here for a moment and talk about riches? You don't think of yourself as being rich, but the reality is every person I know is rich. By the standard of the world in which we live, by some places in the world in which we live, every American, even those living below the poverty line, are people who are in actuality very rich people. But I want you to understand something about this man being rich. Being rich is not necessarily something that's negative or something that's bad. Uh, you can think about people in the Old Testament who were people that were rich. Abraham, for instance, was a very wealthy man. Or Job, a very wealthy man. Or, of course, one of the kings, King David or King Solomon, both very wealthy men. A little later in this gospel, we're introduced to a woman by the name of Mary, Mary of Bethany the sister of Martha and Lazarus, who comes into the room where Jesus is, and she brings this very expensive bottle of perfume, this very expensive container of perfume, and she breaks it, and she pours it over the head of Jesus. She ultimately anoints his feet as well, and she pours this very expensive ointment to worship the Lord Jesus, and those that are in the room watching this unfold are angered because they know how expensive it was. Where did Mary get the money to do that? Apparently, Mary had enough resources, had some measure of riches. Uh, or we know about Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea, who comes and asks for the body of Jesus and takes the body of Jesus and helps to prepare the body of Jesus for burial and then to put that body in a, in a, a, a brand-new grave and we know that the scripture says about Joseph of Arimathea that he was a man of wealth and a man of riches. I want to be careful to say that there's nothing wrong with riches. What's wrong with riches is when they have us rather than us having the riches. 
when they become the priority of our lives, when they take possession of us, when they control us rather than us controlling them. And if God has blessed you with riches, then you should be thankful for those riches. But let's be reminded of what Paul told Timothy. He said, be careful about those uncertain riches. As quickly as you can amass them in your hands, you can, like sand through the fingers of your hands, you can lose those things just as quickly. And yet there's nothing wrong with this man being rich, this man having this great possessions, these great possessions, as he comes and he falls on his face before Jesus. We know about him from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, that he's also a ruler. By a ruler, we don't mean somebody who's a civil ruler as in the government kind of ruling. We're talking about somebody who is a ruler in the religious realm. It even is a word that connotes for some, they're members of the Sanhedrin. If you don't know what the Sanhedrin is, it's made up of 70 men plus the high priest. And this was the supreme court, if you will, of the Jewish people. It's unlikely, I think, personally, that this man was a member of the Sanhedrin at his young age. But nevertheless, it means that he was a ruler within the community, the religious community. He was well-connected in this religious community. He was looked at, and he was respected, and he was honored because he was a member or a ruler of, of the, in, or in, within the religious community. We know that he was enthusiastic. Don't you love young people? All that energy. And all of that enthusiasm is just pouring out of them. I watch our children play, our grandchildren play. And uh, I watch your children play. And I'm amazed at how much energy they have. They never seem to run out of energy. And how many times have you said about young children, if I had just a, what, a little bit of their energy? And here's a young man who has great enthusiasm. He's very excited. He's zealous. He comes how to Jesus? He comes how? He comes running to Jesus. When's the last time you ran? Now, some of you are runners. I'm not talking to you. When's the last time you ran? Ask the preacher. When's the last time you ran, preacher? I mean, this man is full of enthusiasm. And so we know about him that he's rich. We know that he's a ruler in the religious realm. We know that he's enthusiastic about having this meeting with Jesus. And he's got the energy. He's got the wherewithal to run to Jesus and get this whole body of people that are moving now toward Jerusalem to stop for a few moments in order for him to have this encounter with Jesus. But where I want to spend the next few minutes is that we know about him that he was young. I mentioned this briefly a moment ago, but again, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 20, we know that he was young. As a matter of fact, he's called what? The rich young ruler. This is the story of the rich young ruler. And I think it's interesting that the Bible tells us that he was young because this young man, even with his youth, is concerned about the right thing in life. He is concerned about the right thing in life. Notice again, verse 17, what it says. Now, as he was going out on the road, that is Jesus, getting ready to begin moving again toward Jerusalem, as he's going out on the road, one, it's nondescript, we don't know his name or his family or his heritage, but there was one who came running who knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit And notice the next two words, eternal life. 
Now, I don't know what you think about this young man at this point or what you will think of him as we get to the end of this story in a future message. But I want to tell you at this moment as we stop and we think about this young man, what I see is somebody who is sincere. He may be sincerely wrong, but he's sincere. And I see a young man who is interested in things that are eternal. Things that are eternal. I've spent my life, 43 or 44 years of my life, trying to get people to think about the eternal. We live our lives as if this is all there is. We live our lives as if the hundred years that we may get or less to live in this world is where we've got to get everything we can get and we fail so often to live in light of the fact that there is an eternity beyond this world. And the reality is that in the years that God gives us in this life, the years that God gives us to have life, God intends for us to use this life, not just for the benefit of the hundred years we may get, but for the benefit of eternity. And stop and think about eternity for a moment. It's like a single grain, grain of, of sand, less than a single grain of sand of all of the grains that have ever existed or ever will exist. I mean, you can't even begin to measure the length of our lives against what eternity really means. And yet here is a young man. Yes, he's rich. Yes, he's a ruler. He's religious. He's pious. He's very enthusiastic. He's got lots of energy, lots of drive. I think you'll see later that he was as well sincere in the question that he's asking but the reality is, this is a young man, even at this age, who is concerned about things that are eternal. Why is it that we're not more concerned with things that are eternal? Why is it that we have so many of our young people, and I mean by young people, not necessarily just teenagers, young adults, young married couples, young singles. Why is it we have so many people that are living for things that can really never satisfy and ultimately in eternity won't even matter anyway? And so few people who are really living for the things that are eternal, things that will last forever. Isn't that how Jesus taught us to live? Didn't Jesus say that we're to set our affection, or excuse me, uh, in Matthew chapter 6, didn't he tell us that we're to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things would be added to us? Seek what first? The eternal, his kingdom. Seek first his kingdom and all of these other things will be added. And wasn't it Paul? Who said in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 2, set your affection on things above and not on things on the earth? You know, I look back across my life of 63 going on 64 years, and I look back and I'm thankful for my parents in one very important respect, for many respects, but one very important respect. In the midst of all of the ambition I had as a young person and all of the enthusiasm I had as a kid and all of the dreams that I had as I was growing up in their home, the one thing they never let me forget was that the eternal was what really mattered. And your life has got to matter for eternity. And you want to be involved no matter what you're doing in something that has eternal value to it. It's why the that's why we, we place such an emphasis on the gatherings of believers. 
why we place such an emphasis on serving God through a local church where you're reaching out, why we place such an emphasis on reaching out to others who need to know Jesus because their souls are eternal. It's the reason why we give to missions and to missionaries because we're trying to reach things, reach people, and do things that have eternal value. It's the reason why we love people in crisis moments because we want to do what Jesus would have us to do, to live and to love like Jesus so that we can do things that are eternal. Think about it for a moment. What are you doing today, right now, this very moment, that has eternal value to it? Where is your life invested? What are you doing for the cause of Jesus Christ that's laying up treasures on the other side? This young man comes running to Jesus. He's rich. He's a ruler. He's enthusiastic. He is, in my opinion, as we'll see later, sincere. But I want you to notice that he's young. And in his youth, he is concerned about things that are eternal. In this case, he's concerned about eternal life. And can I tell you, there's nothing else about eternity that's more important than the matter of eternal life. Do you have peace with God? Are you right with God? Are you ready to meet God? Have you been reconciled to God? Have you trusted in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ? The saddest thing of this story is that Jesus comes at the middle of his story and he says in verse 21 about this man, you still lack one thing. And that one thing was his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust in Christ and in Christ alone. But when he comes to Jesus, this young man is thinking about the eternal. I was supposed to be speaking this weekend to our D-Now young people. And so those teenagers that are listening that would have been here for that you're hearing a little bit of that message, so pay close attention. Young people, be like this young man who had an interest in things that were eternal. Don't just live your life for the things that last for a short amount of time and then pass away. Stop and recognize you don't want to waste your life. And how many people come to the end of their lives and they've wasted the 70 or 80 or 90 or 100 years that God has given to them. I want you to turn back with me for a moment back to the book of Ecclesiastes. And I want to introduce you to somebody in the book of Ecclesiastes who had tried it all. And the end result was living for the now, living for what is temporal, had left him only empty, had left a void in his life that he couldn't find anything or anyone to fill because he was looking in the wrong place, and his name was Solomon. When Solomon writes the book of Ecclesiastes, he's late in the years of his life. He's a very wealthy man. He's known for his wisdom. God had given to him this unusual wisdom, the ability to discern and make good judgments. God had endued him with that kind of wisdom. But along the way, he began marrying multiple women, taking multiple women into his harem, and they turned his heart away from the Lord so that he stopped seeing life from God's point of view, and he started seeing, as it's described here, life under the sun. He stopped seeing it from a vertical perspective, and he started seeing life from a horizontal perspective. 
And when you come to the book of Ecclesiastes, you're looking at an old man. He's at the end of his life, getting close to the end of his life, and he's giving you a summary. I've tried all of these things. I've been down all of these paths. I've invested my life in all of these things, and I want to tell you what's the final conclusion about this whole matter. I want you to notice some of the things that he says. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. You see the word vanity? Sometime when you're reading through Ecclesiastes, every time you see that word, highlight it. I'll just tell you what that book of the Bible will look like. It'll look like it's scarred. When you go back to that book of the Bible and you read it again, it'll look like you've scarred the pages of your Bible. Why? Because Solomon is telling you that I've tried all these things and it's empty, it's vain, it's worthless. It cannot bring satisfaction to your life. Notice verse 12. He said, I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. You can't be more powerful than that. And I set my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. Now he's looking at education. Do you realize some people will be educated till death? Some people learn and never come to a place of learning. Some people are educated, but they never, they never find their niche in life. They just keep being re-educated in some other field. Solomon says, I've tried all of these things. I've looked in all of these avenues. It's amazing to me how many young people come to a point in life and they say, at the end of college, I have no idea what I'm going to do with my life. I have no idea what I'm going to do with my life. I've got an education, don't know what to do with it. And the degree that's hanging on my wall, I couldn't get a job with it even if I wanted to. At least in that field, I couldn't get a degree. It's amazing. Solomon says, I've tried those things. Look at verse 16. Well, look at verse 14, excuse me. He said, I've seen all the works that are done under the sun. There's this horizontal perspective. All the works that are done under the sun, and indeed, all is vanity and grasping for the wind. I love that, that description. It's not just empty, like a vapor that's there. It's like grasping for the wind. Here's what I want you to do. Take your right hand for a moment. That's the one on this side of your body. Take your right hand. I want you to hold it up. I want you to grasp the wind in front of you. Just grasp it. Can you get it? You got it? You got it in your hand? Solomon says, all these things that I've tried in life, all of these things that I thought would bring me satisfaction, all of these things that I lived for and dreamed about, all of this ambition that I had, all of these things, it's like grasping after the wind. And even when I've reached out for it, I still can't hold on to it. He goes on. Verse 16, he says, I communed with my heart saying, look, I have attained greatness. I have attained greatness and have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. I'm smarter than everybody else. My heart, was under, my, my heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge, and I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that, that this also is what? It's like reaching out to grasp something that you can never take into your hand. Temporal. It's passing away. It doesn't last. It doesn't satisfy. He picks it up in chapter 2. I said in my heart, come now. I will test you with mirth. 
therefore enjoy pleasure. But surely this also was vanity. I said of laughter, madness, and of mirth, what does it accomplish? You hear what he says? You know, a lot, a lot of people live to party. They live for one party to the next party. If they're not on a high, they don't know what to do in life. They live from one moment of excitement to the next moment of excitement. As a matter of fact, I've heard them say to me on many occasions, I could never do what you do because you deal with a lot of sad and difficult moments in life. Paul, excuse me, Solomon says, I've reached out for, for laughter and parties and all the fun that you can have and all of the entertainment that can be yours. And what does it accomplish? He says, verse 3, I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine, with wine. Do you realize that those that are deceived by strong drink are foolish? They're foolish. I don't personally believe any Christian should ever sit down at a table and have a glass of wine or a beer or some other strong drink. You say, well, you can't prove that from the Bible. Listen, we don't live in the first century. We live in the 21st century. And there's lots of options, lots of choices. And I can tell you this, if you've been with me to meet some of the people and to see some of the circumstances where people have been drinking alcohol and their consequences and the results of it, you would understand why I dislike it with all of my being. Because I've seen it destroy people. And Solomon says, I, I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine. He says he did it with wisdom so that he didn't let it get out of control. But let me ask you a question. Who in this room knows whether you have that propensity toward alcoholism or not, addiction or not? Who knows? Who knows whether your child has that propensity or that addiction toward that drink or that drug? Notice verse 4. He says, I made, he made my works great. What do you mean? I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. Wow, we're building a castle now. We got a big house. We got a big yard. Verse 5, I made myself gardens and orchards, and I planted all kinds of fruit, uh, fruit trees in them. I like that. That sounds good, doesn't it? I can walk out through my yard, and I can see the beauty. And by the way, Solomon didn't have to garden any of it. All kinds of fruit trees, verse 6, I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. You know, one of the most calming things to me in life is to be able to sit on a lake or sit at the ocean or sit even by a river and see the water. I have this, I have this lake out here, and it's used to, to irrigate all of these plants and to irrigate all of these trees. He goes on, I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. He's got people to take care of everything. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. That'd be like saying I invested in Apple when Apple was very, very inexpensive. And now my few thousand dollars has turned into hundreds of thousands of dollars. He's got herds and he's got flocks. He's got money. He's got a financial portfolio that is second to none. He's had all that life can give him. He goes on, verse 8, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of the, prince, uh, of the provinces. I've got jewelry galore. 
I've got the nicest stones and the nicest of gold and the nicest of diamonds and my jewelry box is running over and it never gets tangled. You ladies ever have a problem with that? It never gets tangled. He goes on, I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men and musical instruments of all kinds. I don't know if they rapped or not, but he had the best music of the day. So I became great. I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Now listen to verse 10. Whatever my eyes desired, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Then I looked, then I looked on all the works that my hands had done and on the labor in which I had toiled. And indeed, all was vanity and grasping for the wind. Why? Because his focus is on the temporal. It's the under heaven perspective. It's not the vertical view. He sees life like everybody else sees life. God help us Christians when we see life like everybody else sees it. We're supposed to have a heavenly perspective, a spiritual perspective, a biblical perspective to look at life differently. Not to just go along with everybody else and be what everybody else is, the way everybody else does it. Look at verse 17. You talk about suicide, the suicide rates are going through the roof through this lockdown. Listen to what he says, verse 17, therefore I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me for all is vanity and grasping for the wind. I was depressed, I was defeated, and I was discouraged. Have you noticed how many Hollywood stars can't stay married? Have you noticed how many affairs take place in Hollywood? Have you noticed how unhappy those people are and how bitter they can be and how mean-spirited they often are? Have you heard about them taking their own lives? I mean, they are like this rich young ruler who comes to Jesus. They've got the world by their hand. They've got the world in their hand. And yet they're miserable. Because they're chasing after that which can never satisfy. I'm so thankful that that rich young man who came to Jesus was concerned about the right thing in life. He was concerned about the right thing in life. He was concerned about that which is eternal. I want you to look at something. I want you to look toward the end of this book. Chapter 12, listen to what he says. He's an old man. He's looking back across his life. He's telling you that you ought to live your life and enjoy your life, but to remember these things in life cannot satisfy you. They cannot bring you that, the fulfillment of that emptiness, that fulfillment to that emptiness that you feel deep within your soul. That only those who are living for that which is eternal, only those who know eternal life, can know that kind of fulfillment. 
He comes in chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes as he brings the book to a close, and he says, remember now your creator. When? When? In the days of your what? Your youth, young people. By the way, I consider myself young. So I'm talking to a lot of people today. Right? Hey, I'm not an old man yet. I'm not a young man either. We're all in some respect a matter of being in our youth. And what do we do? We're to remember the creator in the days of our youth. We're to be concerned about what's really important in life. Now look, you you can find the church that will tell you to focus on this and ten ways to be happy and four ways to have a better marriage and three ways to get a better job. And you can have a church like that. But a church that's preaching the word of God is a church that comes and calls you to remember what's really important, the eternal things are what's important. To get your focus on that which is eternal, turn your life inside out and recognize that it's not all about you. It's all about serving God and finding ways to do that which changes people's lives that affects Eternity. He says, remember now your creator in the days of your youth. Why? Before. Some of you are going to understand what he's about to say. Before the difficult days come and the years draw near. When you say, I have no pleasure in them. Before you get to that place when you can no longer take that energy and take that enthusiasm and take that excitement and take that usefulness and take all of the ability that you have to invest it in the things of God in the things that are eternal. Do it now. Don't wait till you're an old man. It's too late. As a matter of fact, you'll understand what he says in verse 3. Those of you that are getting into my category and above, he describes very poetically what it's like to age. And why you want to remember the creator in the days of your youth when you've got the energy and the strength and the ability to invest yourself in things that are eternal. Listen to what he goes on to say. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble, that's your hands and your arms, and they tremble. And the strong men bow down, that's your legs, maybe your shoulders. When the grinders cease because they're few, (laughs) that's your teeth. Of course, you can get dentures these days. And those that look through the windows grow dim. I didn't used to wear glasses. When the doors are shut in the street and the sound of grinding is low, you're hard of hearing. It says, if the door is closed. Do you realize that I don't hear as well since we started wearing these masks? Did you realize that? I'm used to not hearing as well as I should hear, and I look at people's lips, and when I can't see their lips, I can't read what they're saying to go along with the tones that they're saying. Any of you been there? That's what he's talking about, this aging process. He goes on. When one rises up at the sound of a bird, they have insomnia. They they can't sleep. They're they're light sleepers. You You can't stay asleep. Any of you get up? The older you get, you get up the earlier, all the earlier. He goes on. He goes on and says, and all the daughters of music are brought low. That's your vocal cords. And now you can no longer voice things like you used to voice them. There's there's a cracking in your voice. 
He goes on in verse 5, and they also, and they are afraid of height and of terrors in the way. Fears begin to rise as you get older. When the almond tree blossoms, he's talking about white hair. Some of you have white hair, we just don't know it. The almond tree blossoms. The grasshopper is a burden. That means you either lack strength that you can't do what you used to do, or he's talking about you're your, your just skin and bones. There's hardly anything left to you. I'm not there yet. That's why I know I'm a young man. The grasshopper's a burden, and desire fails. That's the natural appetites diminishing, for man goes to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. In other words, all of these things, the breakdown of the body little by little in a poetic way, he says, look, while you're young, think about the things of God. Think about what's eternal. Invest yourself in what matters and in what lasts. Live your life for something that'll go on beyond this life. Don't just live for a bigger house and a yard that is beautifully manicured and flowers and plants, landscaping, that's the word I'm looking for, landscaping is exactly the way you'd like it to be with your house backing up to a lake with a boat sitting on it. Listen, if God gives you those things, amen, invite me over. <laughs> but if that's all you have and that's all you live for and you live to move from one house to another house to another house, just one place to another place. You never plug in. You never do anything of spiritual value. You never take hold of what's going to last forever and invest your life in something that matters for eternity. It's vanity. It's vanity of vanities. It's like grasping after the wind. You keep reaching for it, and you never can take hold of it. You continue to have that emptiness. That young man came to Jesus, and he was concerned about the right thing. In life, would to God all of us who are young enough and all of us who are old as well would be concerned about the right thing in life. Notice what he says at the end of chapter 12, verse 13. Solomon, this old man, he's tried it all. Any of you have the wealth of Solomon? Any of you have the ability to do all the things that Solomon was able to do? I don't think so. Notice verse 13, he said, let, me, let, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Let, let me just bring this all down for you. Let me just put it in a nutshell for you. Here's how you live your life. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is man's what? His all, his duty. His all or his duty. This is what matters. And on this day... This young man came running up to Jesus. And while we'll see later some things about this young man, at this moment what we're seeing about this young man is that he was concerned about the right thing in life. He was concerned about eternal life. He wasn't just concerned for temporal things, though it will be his wealth that will be his undoing, as it is for many people. He was concerned about the right thing. I have a friend who was an evangelist. He passed away a couple of years ago. His name was Bailey Smith, Dr. Bailey Smith. We're not best friends, but he'd been here to preach at a church a couple of times, and we played golf together a couple of times. And When we were in Pensacola a number of years ago and our daughter was in school, 
He was there with one of his real evangelism conferences at Olive Baptist Church, and Mary and I went over to hear him, and afterwards we took him out to Whataburger. I mean, when we go to fine dine somebody, we take them to the high-class places. This man was one time the, uh, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, pastored a huge church out in Oklahoma. Wonderful man, a pretty good golfer. Let's just leave it at that. Pretty good golfer. He was telling a story about a time when he was young. First time he'd really had a chance to have a revival. And when he got back to his dormitory, he was in college, when he got back to his dormitory after preaching, those that were in the dormitory asked him, you know, how did it go tonight? What, what was it like tonight? And he said, we had a great meeting. We had a 70-year-old man saved. He said, they, everybody, everybody rejoiced in the dormitory. Everybody was excited. He thought, what a tremendous thing. This man had been hearing preachers, he says, for 70 years and had never gotten saved until I came along. I'm 19 years old, and he heard me at 70 and was saved. He said he turned out the lights, and he went back to bed. And in a moment, he got back up, and he turned the lights back on, and he apologized to the other young men in his dormitory with him. And he said, I forgot to tell them that in the same revival, a little nine-year-old boy had also accepted Jesus Christ as Savior. Isn't that how we think? The 70-year-old, oh, man, a 70-year-old. He'd been listening to the gospel for 70 years and didn't come to Jesus. But I preached and he got saved. And you forget to even tell the story of the 9-year-old. But who has the longest amount of time to invest in the things that are eternal? You, you say, Pastor, why are you so interested in having such an active children's program and youth program. Why is it so important that we do things to reach out to kids? Do you realize that most people make a decision for Jesus Christ when they're children and when they're teens? Do you realize that it's a whole lot better to save a young person from sin than having to see them saved out of some horrible sin? You probably remember some of these great events that happened. I say great monumental events that occurred. You remember, some of you are old enough to remember when John F. Kennedy was shot. I, I would think I was five or six years of age at that point. I don't really remember much about it as far as the details of his being shot at that age, but I, I remember seeing my parents and my family and you know, watching the, the, the television stories about it. You'll remember the discover the Challenger, the spaceship Challenger. Remember, went off into space, and one of the O-rings failed, and suddenly it exploded. And even the teacher that was on board, all of those, all of those on board were killed. Less than two minutes into the flight, who will ever forget 9/11, 2001, when they flew planes into a building? into the Pentagon and into the ground in Pennsylvania. Who will ever forget what it was like where you were? I was at the funeral home. I got up that morning, was watching the news. Katie Couric was the newscaster for the NBC News, and she talked about the plane, showed a video of it. I had to leave. I got to the funeral home, and they had a TV on back in the office, and I went back in the office and watched the, the, the news about it until I had to conduct the funeral that day. I'll never forget the day. August the 31st, 1997, 
That was the day that I woke up to hear that Diana, Princess of Wales, had been killed in a car accident. That accident happened in Paris at midnight. The Mercedes that she was riding in was in a terrible accident under a bridge. They pulled her barely alive out of the car. They took her to the hospital trying to save her life. At one point, they opened up her chest and they massaged her heart trying to keep her alive. But at 3 o'clock that morning, she died. Many people would say that she was a great deal like this young ruler in our scripture. She almost had it all. She was born into a family of wealth. She married into royalty. She had an unlimited budget. She could travel all over the world. She could wear any kind of clothes she desired. And she was indeed an international celebrity. She almost had it all. But the key word there is almost. She was born into a family that became a broken family. She married into a relationship where she wasn't loved. Though she was surely loved by her sons, she was surely loved by a lot of people in the world, somehow Diana never seemed to feel that she was loved. She endured a bad marriage, an adulterous affair. She suffered bouts of depression and bulimia. She, she attempted suicide. She almost had it all, and that she never seemed to have the one thing that she so desperately wanted. Time magazine gave a revealing quotation that she made on one occasion. She said, these are her words, the biggest disease this world suffers, the biggest disease this world suffers from is people feeling unloved. So she tried everything to feel loved. Some of you ladies, you gushed over that wedding I mean, all the pomp and the circumstance, all of the, that dress. Can you remember the dress? All of the pageantry that was going on. Can you imagine it? And yet she died in a Mercedes in the company of a deadbeat playboy who left behind a string of unpaid bills and a string of lovers. She died in a car where the driver had three times the legal limit of alcohol. She almost had it all, but the one thing she desperately wanted and that was to feel loved. She lived for this world, for what the temporal world could provide her, and not for the eternal. I'm going to point out one thing before we finish this message, because we're going to come back to this passage. I want you to notice verse 21. Dealing with this young man, it says, Then Jesus, looking at him, notice the next two words. Do you see them? It's the reason why I chose the Gospel of Mark rather than Matthew or Luke. Then Jesus, looking at him, did what? Loved him and said to him, there's one thing you lack. Can I tell you, friends, there's one thing we lack. We lack that focus on that which is eternal, on that which lasts, on that which is forever. We lack the focus on what's most important, what brings satisfaction. Yes, it takes you through some deep waters. Yes, it may take you through some dark times, but you're never alone and you're never not loved because you've chosen to live for what matters in life. And can I tell you more than anything else what matters? He says, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Jesus says, there's one thing you lack. You know what that is? If you want eternal life, 
Not just live for the eternal things. You want eternal life. What's the one thing? What's the one thing? you got to believe in Jesus Christ. That's the one thing. That's where it all begins. After that, then you make conscious choices every single day. I'm going to live my life for what matters the most. I'm going to live my life for the eternal things and not just the temporal. 